Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Did you ever say that? I remember that being a common phrase during my childhood. I also remember the number of times someone should have a needle stuck in their eye after saying that. It's a pretty extreme promise, isn't it? Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. We did the same sing-song kind of thing when we say ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, ashes to ashes we all fall down. Or how about rockabye baby? On the treetops when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bell breaks, the cradle will fall. Down will come baby, cradle and all. Man, how morbid are we? We say or sing things of serious nature in a less than serious manner, and it is certainly true of the vows that we take. Do we really honor our vows, marriage vows? I take you to be my wedded wife, and I do promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Or did we say our marriage vows with crossed fingers so it didn't count, right? That was the old childhood trick too, right? You cross your heart with your right hand, but your left hand is crossing fingers to nullify the whole thing. But you can't get away with that in a court of law. Do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And yet we know that there are people who lie under oath. Harry Potter's vow was way easier. I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. (laughs) How about baptismal vows or church membership vows? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Sure, as long as it agrees with me, gives me what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. If we take a vow, shouldn't we keep it? Should we take vows at all? Numbers 30, let's see what it has to say about it. And before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. O covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, we exalt you as the God who makes and keeps all of your promises perfectly. We are here because that is the case. May you reveal to us who you are, who we are, and what can be the case because of Christ. And so we pray that your spirit would come now and bear witness to the reading and the preaching of your word. And so it is that we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. As we track through the book of Numbers, we come to chapter 30, which is only 16 verses long, and most of it will make us uncomfortable. But it is God's word and puts front and center something that should be different about God's people. Let's listen together to God's word from Numbers chapter 30. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, This is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. When a young woman still living in her father's house makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge, 
and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. If she marries after she makes a vow or after her lips utter a rash promise by which she obligates herself and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her, then her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her husband forbids her when he hears about it, he nullifies the vow and obligates her or the rash promise by which she obligates herself and the Lord will release her. Any vow or obligation taken by a widow or divorced woman will be binding on her. If a woman living with her husband makes a vow or obligates herself by a pledge under oath, and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her and does not forbid her, then all her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her husband nullifies them, when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that came from her lips will stand. Her husband has nullified them and the Lord will release her. Her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. But if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or the pledges binding on her. He confirms them by saying nothing to her when he hears about them. If, however, he nullifies them sometime after he hears about them, then he is responsible for her guilt. These are the regulations the Lord gave Moses concerning relationships between a man and his wife and between a father and his young daughter still living in his house. Well, before any exposition on what Numbers 30 does say, I must begin with what Numbers 30 does not say. Numbers 30 does not infer that women are inferior Numbers 30 does not say that women are less rational and need more protection from making rash vows. Numbers 30 does not say that, even though modern society does. I'm told that there is a California radio station with a Friday morning segment called the PMS Patrol. Women call in and confess to a variety of misdeeds ranging from ill-tempered outbursts to full-scale felonies, which they committed while supposedly under the influence of PMS. The woman with the best story each week receives a prize for her misbehavior. Presumably on the theory that she was not fully responsible for her actions, the PMS made her do it. And I wonder how many feminists listen to the show with delight, but take exception to Numbers 30. Feminist society is weird that way. Secular things that truly demean women are celebrated, while biblical efforts that truly affirm women are criticized. And so Numbers 30 does not infer that women are inferior. Rather, Numbers 30 does say that women are included. Look again at verse 2, which gives a universal command. When a man breaks a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. That is a universal command. It applies to everyone, man, woman, boy, child, girl, married, unmarried, regardless of your situation or social status, if you make a vow or oath, you must not break your word. What a better world this would be if people simply did this. But we don't. And so God says more. 
Now, much of the time, when God gives a command to man, we recognize it as gender neutral. Our society today sees mankind as a sexist word when the opposite is actually true. God created mankind in his image. This refers to male and female. It's argued that we should say humankind instead. Of course, all that does is adds another syllable. It's hu-mankind. Ordinarily, what God commands to man or mankind refers universally, not just to male man, but also to woe man and girls and boys. However, sometimes God makes specific commands to male and to female, to boys, to girls, to single, to married, to divorced, to widowed, to foreign and native, to believer and unbeliever. And this may be because there are different responsibilities for different roles. And sometimes it is for clarification, as is the case here. Vows or pledges are formal declarations. For the most part, we make formal vows or pledges individually, but not always. When a couple purchases a house or a car, it may be that just one person signs the paper. But the whole family is affected. When writing a check from a joint checking account, one signature may be required, but both parties are affected. And so again, verse 2, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he may be taking this vow or oath personally, but most of the time it obligates himself and others for whom he is responsible. Honey, I bought a boat today. I'm sorry, you what? In today's culture, in an effort to be more inclusive and individualistic, men have become less sensible that they are responsible for more than themselves. Let me say that again. In an effort to be more inclusive and individualistic, men have become less sensible that they are responsible for more than themselves. That was not so much the case for Old Testament Israel. Certainly there were men who abused power and position, and that is addressed in several parts of Scripture. But Old Testament Israel, on the whole, understood covenant headship. They understood that the man as the head of the household didn't mean he could simply do whatever he wanted. On the contrary, he was responsible to look out for the welfare of everyone in his household. And so Numbers 30 includes women who would be part of changing households. Numbers 30 reveals that the God of the Bible is a God of order and not disorder. Think about this in mathematics. If one plus one equals two, then two minus one must equal one. There are not different math rules for different math areas. In fact, we count on mathematics to be consistent. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, polynomial functions. They all work by the same rules. However, you must, along the way, learn new skills in order to understand and apply each one. Just because you understand basic addition doesn't mean that you're ready for advanced derivatives. However, derivatives work because addition doesn't change. The God of order is consistent. 
The husband and father is the head of the household. That's basic addition. Girls getting married and changing households is advanced derivatives. As a father of older teenage girls, there are all kinds of advanced derivative realities happening in our house these days. And that's how it's supposed to be. And so verse 3 addresses the question of when a young woman still living in her father's house makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge. Her father must determine whether this vow or pledge affects the rest of the household for which he is responsible and whether or not it will affect her future household. As we send our daughters off to college... Dads and moms are concerned about paying for college because it affects the household currently. And if that daughter gets married and has college debt, it will affect her future household. And so when a father affirms a daughter's vow, he takes responsibility as the head of the household. When a husband affirms a wife's vow, he takes responsibility as head of the household. Now, it could be argued at this point that the same should be true for young men, for boys. And it does. But Numbers 30 is following the path of women in various status situations because such clarification was necessary. Why? In any system, there are representatives for other groups. If it's a patriarchal system, then certain men represent households or groups. If it's a matriarchal system, then women represent groups. If it's hierarchical, then certain officials represent If it is truly individualistic, then you have utter chaos. You cannot have every single person individually responsible for every matter under heaven. We have governing officials who oversee everything from national defense to legal, financial, infrastructure, and agricultural needs. I do not personally get a say in every meeting about everything that happens in the world that affects me. I might not like what others decide, but that's how it goes. And so, of course, we can and should address problems within a system. But as I've said before, and I'll say it again now, systems don't save. There is no perfect system that is above reproach and corruption. People need a perfect Jesus, not a perfect system. The good news is that there is a perfect Jesus who saves because there is no perfect system, because systems don't save. Jesus does. And so Numbers chapter 30 is one of those passages where God speaks specific realities into the God-ordained system. The husband, father, as head of the household, a young man eventually beginning his own household, and women who are under this headship that must be protected. Again, modern society would say that women should simply be given their own headship so they can protect themselves. But again, it doesn't work. Giving everyone their own individual headship creates impossible chaos. And then it never addresses the root issue. God gives us the system, and when there are problems, we see that it's not the system, it is the people within the system not fulfilling their vows. Creating a new system isn't the answer. It only causes more chaos. Go back to mathematics. If you're doing advanced derivatives and you get stuck on a problem, you can't simply say, well, I can make this work if over here 1 plus 1 equals 45.2 and over here 1 plus 1 equals negative 17.3. There, now the problem is solved. 
The New Testament passages that we read earlier in the service illustrate and resolve this truth. Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37, is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus drives to the heart of the law. We know that people can claim to keep strictly to the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit of the law. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to murder. In that, Jesus is not saying, thou shalt not murder was a bad law. Jesus drives to the heart of the law that murder grows out of anger. Similarly, in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus isn't saying you shall not commit adultery was a bad law. Jesus drives to the heart of the law. Adultery grows out of lust. And by the way, lust and adultery is not just an issue for men, even though Jesus only addresses men in that passage. And so in the passage we read, which follows an attempt by others to explain away divorce because they followed the letter of the law. Matthew 5.33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. Now, Jesus is not changing the moral law of the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying that we should no longer make vows or oaths. Jesus drives to the heart of this law. He says, don't swear with all kinds of flowery language when you're not going to keep the oath at all. Don't be childish with crossed fingers so you can later say that you weren't obligated because of some technical loophole. Rather, be trustworthy. Keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The world is full of liars and cheats. God's people must not be like that. We must be people who keep our promises. In fact, the whole section of the Sermon on the Mount begins at Matthew 5, 17, with Jesus saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus perfectly fulfills the ceremonial law and the moral law so that we find our full salvation in him. But this does not excuse us from continuing to live out the moral law. On the contrary, Jesus says, for I tell you, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees kept the letter of the law. We live out the spirit of the law. We live out the fullness of the law. And that is because our faithfulness reflects God's faithfulness. We are made in God's image. God's faithfulness is imaged in our faithfulness. We are God's covenant people because he is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Hebrews 6, 13 says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us not to swear by any created thing by heaven or by earth, by Jerusalem or by your head. In other words, don't say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Don't say, I swear on my mother's life, which is just rude. If you're making an oath, then make the oath. I solemnly swear, so help me God. Hebrews 6 shows us a God who makes a promise 
which in itself is absolutely trustworthy, and makes an oath confirming the promise and swearing by himself. And so when we say, I swear to God, we echo God who also says, I swear to God. Our hope for eternity is anchored on the truthfulness of the Lord and his faithfulness to keep his word. That is why God is so concerned about our faithfulness to do what we have promised. What does it say to the world if Christians are no more trustworthy than the rest of the world? If we don't keep our vows any better than anyone else? We do not take vows in order to win God's favor. Like the pre-converted Martin Luther who cried out during a thunderstorm, save me St. Anne and I'll become a monk. We do not read the Bible, pray, go to church, or serve others in order to win God's favor. Jesus has already won God's favor for us. Our salvation has been won by the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are called to be faithful, not to win God's faithfulness, but a reflection of God's faithfulness that has been won for us. Our salvation is not based on our ability to keep our vows to serve God. It is based on God's covenant made with Christ on behalf of the elect. On the cross, Jesus bore the punishment and made atonement for all our broken promises. This is way more than what Numbers 30 says about a husband simply being responsible for the penalty or a father being responsible for a daughter's broken vow. Jesus not only takes responsibility, but pays the full price for all broken promises. Our faithfulness reflects the blood-bought faithfulness of Jesus Christ. As we are to give respect to the structures and systems that God has set in place, male headship in the family and the church, governmental authorities for other aspects of order, We do not need to change systems. We need Christ to change hearts. Changed hearts transform systems. Changed hearts transform marriages, families, churches, and communities. So let us be a people that not only administer the gospel of Jesus Christ for those changes, but let us be a people that also are faithful because we reflect God who is faithful to us. And may the truth set us free.